But anyway, um, yeah, so coronavirus. Um, yeah, so office gets shut down, working from home. That's kind of um, kind of me at the moment. How are you doing for work? I've been working from home the whole week and it's pretty boring. Like, <laughs> you, you got to wake up and then you go for a walk because I was walking around the park by yourself yeah. or at least in the groups of two max is yeah. acceptable and everything else is like not acceptable and it's like you've seen exactly. the slow closure of parks and everything yeah oh, it, was, it was funny i went i went to do uh early voting uh last week um yep. and um they, they had a pretty they had a pretty decent setup actually to try and keep people um where they were supposed to be but um there was this one guy who refu- adamantly refused to walk through the door because i was standing um too close towards the entrance mm. we were talking maybe like a pace or two away um but would would refu- stop stood stock still stare at glaring at me and refuse to move until i backed started backing away yeah T- most bizarre experience you know um, you know what the thought the thought wouldn't didn't even cross my mind of going oh that's that's a thing <laughs> until he until he went until he reacted that way yeah uh for me i think what was interesting is or what was, I guess, makes me annoyed is there was, um, they came off the boat or people coming off from overseas and they get quarantined into hotels, right? Yeah. And then they're whinging about it. They're saying, oh my gosh, it's like, I think, what was it? Um, Prisoners have more rights than us. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, (laughs) you have a hotel. They have have no idea. You have your own shower cubicle. You get room service. Yeah, maybe the food sucks, but it's only for what, 14 days? And then go back to your home. I do... I do understand. I, I was reading one story of one um, young mother who had um, two kids with her, yep. and they were all quarantined. So I kind of can understand where government policy hasn't been designed to cater to, I guess, non-adults or yeah. young children. I could, and I can understand. Okay, okay well, maybe we need to flex the rules a little bit so that it accommodates um, the, un- the unusual people. Well, unusual people, wrong term, but you get the idea. Um, but um, the exception. On the whole, the ex- yeah, that that's the word I'm looking for. It's like these these un- unusual people. It's like no, wrong word. <laughs> anyway, but we are so spoiled. I mean, like what, fourteen yeah. days? Like like prisons, not fourteen days. No, prisoners for life. Last time I checked, or, or prisons at least longer than fourteen days. Maybe like you know, you come in, you get detained, but you know, you get to go out, and it's not like you get to hang out with people, strangers, right? It's, yeah, exactly. It's you and your family. So you know, yeah. barren there fourteen days. Yeah. Maybe turn on the television. Maybe watch a movie. <laughs> Granted, maybe, they have been stuck. I would argue they have been stuck on a cruise ship for who knows how long on holiday with those people in the same cabin. So yeah, but, I could un- I could kind of understand where it's like that's it. I'm at my wits end. I want to go home. I want to relax. Now I've got to wait. I've got to have two more weeks with these awful, awful people I call family. <laughs> And go back, yeah, and be and be locked down as well, your family. Exactly, oh, exactly. Gosh. All right. I That's think right. We're ready. Cru- for- cruise, yeah. Cru- cru- if I had to pick a holiday, cruise would pretty much be the bottom of the list. Yeah, and and don't yeah. go cheap. Um, and, yeah. And buy a, a buy a window or buy something which has a balcony. All right. So episode two, inner freedom and going through trials with Patrick and Johnny. Right. I want you to think back to a time when you're amongst a group where perhaps one person is being unfairly treated by another. The victim might be vocal, or not. The offender might be vocal and even blasé about their actions toward the victim. However, the group is quiet. You're amongst that group. Do you choose to step out and rebuke the bully? Or do you remain quiet? 
After all, you're not the one in trouble. In fact, maybe the bully is your boss and he's hurting the new guy and you're on track for promotion on a special trip or assignment. If you choose to speak up, all those good things will be taken away. So it's in your favor to be silent. Yet what happens in that moment is not just a reflection on the bully and the victim, but on you. Your decision to speak up or keep quiet matters. Now let's change the situation a bit. You're in a small, dark, smelly dungeon chained next to the railing. You're isolated from your cellmates, and you only see them when you're out together for a toilet or shower. At night, the guards beat, mock, and spit on you. At the peak of your frustration, they push a paper towards you and you read it. It's a false story about you saying that you criticized the leader, and you're sorry. Sign, sign, the guards scream. Just sign it all be over. So what would you do? Do you sign, or do you refuse? You know what the gods would do to you if you refuse. Now step back and think. Do you have a choice in this situation? Well, Patrick, what do you think? This is a, it's a, tri- it's a really tricky question to ask yourself. A bit of introspection almost of what do you do in the face of adversity? Everyone has values and principles. And when push comes to shove, do you compromise? Or how far do you compromise on those principles and values? It's a tricky question because it's easy to say when you aren't facing this adversity, um, when you're not put in this situation, you know what the right thing to do is, but when you're in that situation, at that moment in time, you don't often know what what your response is actually going to be. Yeah, I mean, there there is that cultural gap between us and the person who's in in a solitary confinement being tortured. I mean, mm. I mean, just now we were talking about, you know, making fun of the guys or, well, at least pointing out the interesting bit that, you know, guys coming from quarantine, going into hotel rooms, they're suffering. And we're like, why are you suffering? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, like it, it's easy to make a critique when you're sort of detached from that environment, which, and you haven't been gone through maybe the 30 or 40 days travel outside, you're going through customs, going through the airport, and now you're getting shuffled and pretty much shuffled you know, into a hotel yeah, yeah pushed into a hotel um yeah it's like here stay here for the next two weeks um can i go out no you have to stay here you're in quarantine yeah but but yeah it, it, it's it's easy it's easy to mock people who do complain and do complain about conditions like uh they the story the stories of um people comparing it to um being in prison prison conditions and you most some people would look at and go that's you've got no idea what prison would even be like it pales in comparison what you're experiencing pales in comparison Hmm. um but i would suspect that you and i i would probably be singing a very different tune quite possibly when um if i was put in that position quite possibly yeah but it's really it's really hard it's really hard to hard to say oh i know exactly what i would do in that situation yeah because honestly i don't and that's a it's tricky. That's a tricky thing to say to to say with absolute surety. Like I know I will do the right thing when it comes down to it. Yeah. So yeah. Th- there's a really there's two interesting books that's out there. So Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning and the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So uh, both these authors uh, experienced suffering through a Nazi or communist. Co- concentration camps and it came to the conclusion on a human condition that we always have a choice no matter how bad the conditions are so i'll go through victor frankel's um his comment from uh, from his book 
So we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in numbers, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way, and it was always choices to make. Every day, every hour, offered the opportunity to make a decision, a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of a typical inmate. So he, so Viktor Frankl is a famous psychologist who's actually gone through the Nazi concentration camps, and he's, and he's noticing that, you know, that they all come into this group, and it's really hard living conditions. Yeah, of course, and, absolutely. And one of the things is some of them endured, some of them would resist or keep enduring in, to the point where they're giving away the food when they're starving. Yeah. Right. So they're still trying to maintain that sense of dignity mm. in the face of um, adversity. Where the the entire environment, the guards, um, the people in charge, everything is engineered to destroy your personal dignity, your personal sense of worth. Yeah. Uh, your 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 very humanity. Um, mm. That's what those places were designed to do. So it was almost it, it almost sounds like a bit of an act of defiance almost of the. The, the other the, the men running those camps um, this is what they they were trying to break break these people down and an act, the final act of defiance the only thing they could do to resist and push back was to keep their dignity yeah and yeah. and that in itself is your inner it's, freedom it's, it's, so a pow- it's a very powerful statement yes yeah, so your outer freedom is that you know you're restrained from home you're not allowed. Well, you're restrained at home. You're not allowed to go anywhere, or you're you're in jail. So you have yeah. your physical sort of freedom to be able to go outside and make choices and go shopping. You're in jail, so that's your outer freedom sort of gone. But your inner yeah. freedom, how you act within that sort of confinement, mm. that you can make decisions every day. You can be nice yeah. to the guard. You can be rude to the guard. You can mm. you can take the bread. You can share that bread. You can yeah. steal the bread from someone else. Yeah. That's sort of your inner freedom that he's talking about. Well, I, well, I think with a bit, 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 bit topical of what's going on now with um, coronavirus, um, we're, we're seeing different shades, different flavors of human nature coming out, uh, being brought to the forefront. People are either, you, you can see the people who are displaying the more baser instincts of, um, of our human nature, um, hoarding toilet paper and grocery store and things in the grocery store or fighting um, over toilet paper or, yeah the, that, that video that was on social media yeah um <laughs> absolutely ridiculous but um those are the those are the more baser human instincts of being selfish of of greed of thinking thinking of only of only of myself at the same token you're also seeing the more more enlightened more higher instincts or more higher attributes of human nature that does exist in, within all of us, the capacity for goodness, for kindness, Thank, thanking the, um, the shop assistant, checking in on your neighbours, what the church is doing by, by banding together the way they're doing, especially especially now. Yeah. 
we're we're seeing that we're seeing we're seeing these these warring aspects of what it means to be to be human, the good and the bad. Bit of Jekyll and Hyde also to bring a bit of a Victorian Victorian era bit of a fiction fiction writing into the mix. Oh, I don't know how long this is going to go for. I've heard six weeks. I heard six months. And I've heard eighteen. Eighteen months. Wow. Yeah. I didn't remember SARS being or, or swine flu being this long. It was, um, yeah, it was definitely a fear. From all the information I've gathered, and, I, and um, from all from all the information that I've gathered, um, it seems it seems like the the main difference between the COVID uh, virus and I guess SARS or um, swine flu or um, I can't remember what the the uh, there was a, there was one related to um, horses I think uh, last year or two years ago or something. Um, right. Can't remember what the name of it was at the moment, but um, it was the infection rate. It appears, or it seems at least, from the information we've gathered, that the coronavirus is more infectious. It's not killing. It's not killing people on to the same degree, but it's the infection rate that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Where you don't essentially you don't want your entire population infected. Yeah. Yeah, and you're, and we're seeing that in large population mass population centers like like cities like New York, in Italy, in China as well. We're seeing large numbers of people becoming infected. So, yeah. I, I can I can under I can understand the desire to try and reduce the, the infection rate. It, it, that does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, well, let's anyway. move on because we'll keep, we'll keep hearing about coronavirus for what six eighteen months. So let's keep these listeners on track. So absolutely. <laughs> uh, so the Gulag app archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, and here is um, a comment by Mr. Solzhenitsyn. Uh, it was granted me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load. This essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of use, useful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In a surfeit of power, I was a murderer, an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. And it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straws that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not through classes, sorry, not between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us. It oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is remaining, and even in the best of all hearts, there remains an up, unuprooted small corner of evil. Since then, I have come to understand the truth of all the religions of the world. They struggle with the evil inside every human being. It is impossible to expel evil from the world in its entirety, but it is possible to constrict it within each person. And... I guess for, for the listeners out there, Solzhenitsyn actually was a strong um, communist officer serving during World War Two, and then he wrote about the the political impacts and um, how the how the Soviet Union took all those first early losses when uh, when Germany invaded uh, Russia, and it was like this blame on you know Stalin, and eventually when he was came to realize that. Oh, there's actually this whole system was um, was falling apart. This communist system was deceiving the people. He wrote in his book and he got flagged by one of his friends when he was corresponding. So that's when he said, you know, in, when when he was he felt himself to be infallible. 
he was you know driven by success you know he was an officer and he had guys and he was in charge of and he would say you know give me this bread or give me or, or, or he had actually a, it's funny he had a in a communist army and he had a a manservant because he was an officer serving him mm. it was it was just you know despite you know we're all equal in this um in this army where well, we're all comrades where yes. there's actually that level of inequality within it and it's not until he gets thrown into the into the gulags that he understands that well, in fact, everyone's evil. Um, and we we can fight to constrain the evil within ourselves. I'm actually interested to, uh, uh, to delve deeper. It's almost when the, um, the blindfold gets pulled off you, uh, the metaphorical blindfold, all the, the trappings and the luxuries and the distractions get pulled away. You lose those, and you then realize um, the the slavery the bondage that you're in that you've been that you've been trapped by yeah uh, i think it was interesting when he says everyone is actually has a little bit of evil or everyone has a bit of evil with themselves you can't get rid of it but you can still constrain it so you can still fight fight the evil uh desires within you yeah um, because we often think you know people are born neutral right with the 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 idea that we're all born with blank slate Yes, but but what's very interesting is that you know if you served in um, with kids or anything or you your parent, you don't have to teach them evil things, like you always have to teach them how to do good. So, share your toys with another, play with each other, don't fight. You know, you know, get together, say sorry. But you go what as as the kid? Why why should I share my toy? It's my toy. It's mine. But the, that's, that, that's actually the default. Yeah, so, so that idea comes from them by instinct. Mm. You know, I never see a kid who wants to naturally share stuff. It's usually after, you know, the parents... Oh, you, you can usually see it in the parents that teach this to the kid, right? Mm. Well, I would, get, I would hazard a guess that there's been one baby in all of human history who would, be, who would fit that bill. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I wonder, you know. Only, only one, though. Only one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll move on to, I guess, one person's experience. And uh, today we're looking at Rear Admiral Jeremiah Denton's experience in North Vietnam as a prisoner of war underneath under, under the communist North Vietnamese. So Jeremiah Denton was 41 years old and in peak health. On a fateful day, he was shot down. He wasn't able to escape uh, due to leg injury. Uh, he was caught and sent to Vietnam's war's infamous prisoner of war camp that the North Vietnamese run. Its name was the Hole Low Prison, which meant fiery furnace or hellhole. The French had used it for their, for their dangerous prisoners. So when the communists took over it and started using it for the, uh, American prisoners, the Americans nicknamed it Hanoi Hilton, as if it's a mockery of the hotel that the North had prepared for its guests. Huh, yep. So, uh, today in Vietnam, you'll see the the whole low museum, which uh, reconstructs the conditions that v- the Vietnamese and Americans endured, which had iron rope bindings, stocks, and solitary confinement. So the Vietnamese took these ideas from the French and then took it to the next level and put the Americans in them. Uh, so for me, Jeremiah Denton remains a model and, and a hero of someone who endured living hell. 
who was at the mercy of whatever physical torture the communists gave, who's also suffered uh, weather, disease, injury, and loneliness for eight long years. And uh, we're going through parts of his book, When Hell Was in Session. So I'll give you a context of uh, the first part, which is he's dealing with a prison guard or torturer called Mickey Mouse, and he gets uh, indented and is trying to resist an organize, uh, organized resistance with his uh, U.S. POWs, and and they're all pilots, so they all know Morse code. And and he gets caught by Mickey Mouse tapping out messages uh, on the walls in Morse code. So, I was taken from my cell and across the alley to a quiz room where I faced Mickey Mouse. No longer the attentive listener, he got right to the point. You've been caught communicating, he said, shaking his finger. You must write letter to President Ho Chi Minh and apologize for your crimes. I said I would not. Okay, Mickey Mouse said. I leave you to think deeply. I was taken to another room in the same buildings. Irons were placed on my legs and I was pushed against a wall, arms outstretched over my head. There I stood for two days and two nights under guard. If my arms slipped, the guard would force them upward again and press a nail hard against the palm of my hand for added encouragement. On the third morning, Mickey Mouse came in and asked me again if I would write the letter of apology. I refused. We are going to get serious then, Denton, he warned. Having beaten them in my last two tor uh, torture sessions in 1966, I thought I, would, I could do it again. In an effort to deter the punishment, I wrote Mickey Mouse a note reminding him of my previous success and said that if they were determined to torture me, they would have to torture me to death. That was a mistake. It was a pledge I couldn't keep. The next stage was a was rear cuffs and leg irons. A guard dragged me th around the rough cement floor until the leg cuffs began tearing into my ankles. He jerked me left and right and lifted me by the rear handcuffs. The same mess all over again for hours. Then I was left on the floor for a day. Mickey Mouse gave me one more chance to write the letter, and again I refused. In the months since my last torture, the Vietnamese had developed a rig that was unknown to me, and it was perfect answer to my ability to take pain until passing out. As soon as Mickey Mouse left the room, a guard slammed open the door and held out a rope and a four-and-a-half-foot pole pointed at one end. Two more guards came into the room, and the three of them began tying my wrists and lower forearms together in front of me. They forced my elbows apart and forced my knees between them and pushed the pole through the hole created by my elbows and knees. Then they tipped me back on my spine and propped my feet on an overturned stool so that my feet were raised about a foot off the ground. In essence, I was in a fetal position. My thighs pressed against my chest so tightly that I could hardly breathe. My body was tipped at such an angle that most of my weight was on the tip of my spine. The pole was the key to the rig, if the rig was properly tied. I would pass out eventually and fall on my side. The end of the pole would hit the floor and slide out of the rig, easing the pressure on my arms and restoring circulation. The pain that came with the blood circulation would bring me back to consciousness. Thus, the prisoner could not beat the rig by passing out. But the guards had tied the ropes poorly, then allowed some of the loops to overlap, and by working at the rope, I could eliminate the overlaps thus loosening the rope and allowing enough circulation so that I could last about four hours without passing out. The rig was still painful, 
but I could stand it. Mickey Mouse came in, obviously worried that the rig wasn't working, and I would beat it, as I had promised. He had the guards untie me, and I was brought some food, but I couldn't eat it. I dawdled with the food to buy time, but Mickey Mouse became impatient, and with a wave of the hand said, Denton, we will break you now. I was retired, but again ineffectively, and was able to last four more hours. Finally, a guard named Sadsack inspected the rig and criticised the guards for their incompetence and supervised the retiring. This time, the rig worked, and after an hour of agony, during which time I, which time I had watched my hands slowly swell and turn black, I passed out and fell over. The end of the pole hit the floor and slipped from the rig, as intended, and the rush of blood to my arms brought me back to consciousness and renewed pain. By then, six or seven guards were kicking and punching at me. After a period of time, pain became an all-encompassing entity, a fiery, blinding devil that courses into every part of the brain until you would literally do anything to escape it. After three cycles, it became too much. It had driven me to the point where I would have happily committed suicide to escape it. I would have run my own mother down with a truck if the price was freedom from pain, but I could do nothing. I felt my heart pumping mightily to force the blood through my strangled limbs and hoped it would give out. I prayed to die. After a total of about 12 hours in a rig, I called for the guard who had been listening outside. In a matter of seconds, there was the sound of excited voices as he passed away that had been broken. As I heard several people rushing in triumph towards the cell. Among them was Mickey Mouse with pen and paper in hand. I agreed to write. The next day, in about three brief paragraphs, I wrote, in essence, Dear Ho Chi Minh, I'm sorry I bombed your country. Please forgive me. It's uh, <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. We were just talking before about the capacity for human evil and human good. I mean, that pretty much encapsulates the, the one of the darkest accounts of human evil that I've certainly heard. Oh, but but he keeps yeah. resisting, you know. Like he, he has yeah. that will inside him. He said, "You know what? I've I fought you twice before. Now I'm going to fight mm. you again, and I'll fight you to death." Yeah. And he designed this thing that he can't just sort of go into unconsciousness and sort of black out, and therefore you know extend the torture when he's not really yeah. being tortured. He doesn't feel anything, mm. um, and he keeps resisting until he breaks, eventually, and the and the yeah. But but it's you know he takes the hard path rather than an easy path. The easy path is uh, as soon as you even see yourself being tortured or you or he just gives you um a threat. Yeah, he'll just sign a thing. Yeah, the the it's the moment that you face even a small bit of adversity, uh, you cave. Yeah. Or do you choose? It's a choice. It, you're right. It's a choice. Do you choose? Do you cave to the pressure immediately, or do you try and fight? Try and resist. Odd. <laughs> and it's it's it to hark back what harken back to um what we were talking about at the start of this conversation. Um, I certainly think it's I certainly think that it's a almost impossible. Very, it's a very difficult thing to say. Yes, I could do that. It's, inc- it's I, w- I would say it's difficult not to nigh on impossible to say with absolute surety. Oh yeah, I that that's fine. I can I could I could last there. Yeah, yeah. And and it's not just like 
um, the physical, it's also the mental. Yeah. So so he's resisting when he's been applied mental pain. He's he hasn't had much sleep. He's being beaten around the clock. Yeah. If he tries to go to if he goes unconscious, he falls on his side, and it wakes him up because the the blood circulates again. Yeah. yeah these, these torture devices aren't. They're, not, they're designed not to leave any permanent scarring, but you know it's like similar to waterboarding, but it's still painful physically and mentally. Yeah. But if I can probably say that after he wrote, you know, Dear Ho Chi Minh, I'm sorry I've bombed your country, please forgive me. Mm. He reflects, you know, he feels defeated, but, and he says, I was angry as hell about the apology I had written to Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> he's not giving up, even after he's, oh, he, he gives up. It's, it's a, it's a, mo- he, it's a, mo- it's a momentary retreat almost. Yeah. But once you've retreated, once you've regrouped, then you're then he well it's 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 an incredible mark to it's, it's an incredible credit to um, Denton's character that yes he he retreats he regroups but then he's ready he's raring for the fight again yeah and he, and he's ready ready to go at it again mm. in spite of the horrend absolutely horrendous conditions that he was um that was awaiting him yeah yeah it's uh it brings me back when I was doing hiking and one person, you know, it, it was in Tassie and we, it was steep and there's annoying bits where you, you slipped and then you fall down, but you always have to get up. Otherwise you will never finish the journey. You know, so if you fall down, the most important thing is getting back up again and mm. lifting that weight back onto your shoulders and plodding through yeah. um, the trek. We heard from Frankel and Solzhenitsyn on the good and evil within all of us that there is an inner struggle for the good inside us, fighting to overcome the evil within us. When we face bad situations, we have the same degree of choice that could bring out the best of us or add to the problem. I think that is true for us, but somehow our culture has somehow defaulted to falling away at the first hint of adversity. We don't know how much invisible potential we have inside us until we decide to step up to the plate. And now, back to the show. All right. So Denton's now a bigger target. He's actually one of the leaders. And so the North Vietnamese tried to break him again as he thinks, and they think that he's the one, or he's that key person that holds the moral, the morale and the spirit of the, the prisoners in Hanoi Hilton. So in chapter eight. After what I judged to be four days and four nights of fasting in total darkness, I believe that I was beginning to lose my grip. I couldn't keep my mind occupied, and a deep, insidious cold had stiffened my body and penetrated my consciousness so thoroughly that on a few occasions when I could focus my mind, all I could do was mourn my condition. My wrist had become swollen, and in lucid moments I worried that I would lose my hands, which had been without feeling for days. There's plenty of pain in the rest of my body, however, 
especially in my shoulders and back. And what I believe was the fourth night, Smiley, the prison guard, checked my cuffs with his flashlight. He gave a little grunt and departed somewhat hurriedly. In a few moments, he was back with some tools. He switched on the light and looked at my wrists as three enlisted men entered the cell and stared curiously at me. Smiley was worried. My wrists were torn and bleeding and so swollen that he couldn't contract the cuffs enough to disengage the ratchets and remove them. By squeezing very hard, he finally got one cuff off, but the other was buried deep in the pus-filled flesh. Smiley held the arm up in front of me, and the three enlisted men worked on the cuff. JC, the duty officer, who was usually so mean, came bustling through the door, his face anguished. Denton, I'm sorry about this, he said in his high-pitched voice. Smiley, very nervously, looked over his shoulder at JC and spoke sharply to him. JC backed away and for the next three hours watched silently as the four men worked on a cuff. They finally got it off by removing the pin that held it together. I held my hands in front of me. The fingers were black and swollen to twice the normal size. Smiley threw the old cuffs out the door while one of the enlisted men held my arms behind me. He snapped another pair on my wrists. Then he shoved down in the corner. In a few moments I was alone and in total darkness again. I began to hallucinate. Unfamiliar faces appeared and reappeared, floating along in the darkness and disappearing through the door. Strange noises came muffled out of the blankets draping the walls, and I dreamed constantly of an escape in which I crawled miles until I was found and nursed back to health by an old Vietnamese woman. In lucid moments, I sought a reservoir of strength to justify the sacrifice. I built an image of my country and knew it was the best in the world. Then I was asked myself, what difference does it make? Why not give in? I prayed. God became more than faith. He became knowledge and appealed to him. Then I became ashamed. Why hadn't I embraced him so thoroughly before? I went back and forth from despair to euphoria as my strength ebbed. Isolation became total disorientation. I lost track of what I was, where I was. I was being reduced to the kernel of my being. Beyond that, I would lose control. On the seventh day, a Sunday, in momentary period of alertness, I decided to give them something. I cried for help. Finally, Smiley opened the, opened the door and switched on the light. I blinked and babbled hysterically that I had to get out. Dried blood streaked my chest. Feces clung to the bottoms of my pyjamas, which were completely stained with urine. I had little left. So, I found it interesting that he... he to... To deal with the suffering outside, he goes, withdraws inside, and we also see a little bit of, you know, a bit of weakness in Denton. He he questions himself. You know, why why not give in? You know, why make all this effort to resist these guys? You know, I'm in this. I'm tucked away in this country in in the middle of nowhere. You know, home home is on the other side of the world. You know, what difference does it make? Why not give in? And so, uh, yeah, I think for him, religion, I think he's a, he is a Catholic. Um, he he goes back to his foundations. He goes back to God. Yeah. he, he t- to, to resist this pain, he takes some, he, he takes something from, from his bag of tools and he, it, and it's stronger and more appealing um 
and it displaces the pain that he's been going through. Well, I think that we were talk we've we've talked before we talked about how human nature has both good and evil within it. The the past the capacity for for great evil, as we're we're seeing in the we're seeing in these absolutely horrific accounts, but also the capacity for for good and for strength and for resilience. I think another aspect of humanity you can see this in innumerable different cultures across the world and throughout throughout history the capacity for the, to recognize the divine this this god-shaped hole if you would that we often fill um as you said denton a catholic he he filled uh he filled that hole with his faith in in god in the christian god yeah so you know for the christian yeah. faith it's death is not permanent and there are fates exactly. worse than death, like eternal damnation. Mm. And I think, I think that plays a very strong part in helping him endure the the physical, you know, the short term thing that uh, that appears in front of him. Because he knows that even if he dies in prison, he he believes in, you know, the Christian faith, and he'll he'll go on to live forever with his uh with his maker. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an interesting part where he reflects on how he's keeping the Americans together. So in chapter 12, uh, there was always someone in trouble from his wounds, the starvation diet, illness or torture. I was helpless to aid anyone. All I could offer was sympathy, which in our condition had some value, but not much. I had long since learned whoever I demanded, the Vietnamese would do exactly the opposite with her. Who do you think you are? Attitude. This was often accompanied by beating to emphasize the point. Personal disaster hung over my head continually. It was now certain torture if we were caught communicating. But like most of the others, I was at it constantly, trying to bolster morale. I learned that two officers who had been tortured to the point of unconsciousness at the Hilton and were now cellmates at the zoo were advising new shootdowns to give in quickly. That there was no point in resisting. I passed the word to them. We must all lie down in front of the train and slow it down. We must do our best each time we are tested. That is our only way to defeat their aims. I asked the officers to countermand their orders and tell everyone to resist. They apologized and passed the word. The North Vietnamese could break anyone into giving them something, and some of the men were in deep despair because they had been unmercifully tortured into giving biographies and confessions. I passed the word for them to get themselves together. The line is, if you are broken, don't despair. Bounce back as soon as you can to the hard line. Bounce back. It became our way of life. And that's uh, that's the f- one of the final bits of uh, his, his book, When Hell Was in Session. So, you know, he takes control of these prisoners in the camp. He sort of acts as their commander-in-chief. And he communicates with them in Morse code and using tappings and whistles. And he establishes a chain of command and encourages people to resist until they could endure it. And, it, and I think it it, re- it, re- it really is that retreat, but then regroup and push back, yeah. go, go for another assault, keep keep trying to take the hill. Well, what else is there to do? Like, if you give up, then you're just giving up everything. Yeah. And so, by keeping them focused and maintaining morale and giving them a purpose, it helps them endure. Yeah. Purpose and meaning, absolutely. That you you've hit the nail on the head there. It's it's giving, 
it's giving them a mission. Yeah. So, you know, there's one, there's a, there's a few other stories which we want we have we having the read out, and you know, he was paraded in front of in the streets of Vietnam when there's one particularly nasty incident which the public was screaming to the the government to help, and and they, and they were paraded. These prisoners of war were paraded to sort of, you know, be the target of all the anger and venting. So that's one. And then they paraded in front of uh, in front of TV for Vietnamese propaganda. He, and there is one significant story which is now in popular culture where he, where he's trying to he's giving an interview with a with another TV reporter from another country, but he secretly communicates in Morse code to the television. By blinking his eyes, the word torture. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, it's that it con- continuing, continuing to resist. Yeah. So, so even though he can't do anything outside, he mm. inwardly chooses to make that decision to yeah. communicate. Continually, continually defiant till yeah. the end. Yeah. And there's like some other happy things. Well, <laughs> happy in terms happy, of happy in uh, a loose sense of the term. Yeah. I think I found this uh, story where they're in all in solitary confinement. So I think like, you know, the bridge of the River Kwai where they're all in like steel dog huts, right? Yeah. So it's hot, it's outdoors. And all they can see is this little gap in the in in how it's constructed, these um metal cages. Mm. But it's all instead of a, a cage it's all, you know, metal corrugated iron, which is sort of a, a steel box. So, but it can still see little gaps of light in there. And so they play chess inside. And they flash, flash the you know, king to take knight or whatever, or queen to take this piece in Morse code. And and it got to the point where you know they were tracking this this chess game, and one guy's about to get the drop on the other. You know he's about to put this guy in checkmate. And so when they signal it through, it's not just one person blinking it. It's it's one person passing that message on to the other person. <laughs> and the and the guy, yeah. he. he he puts the piece into checkmate, and he hears on the other side, "You know, you son of a bitch!" And everyone just starts <laughs> laughing. And the prisoners, uh, sorry, the guards uh, notice that something's wrong, and then they're all sort of forced to come outside, and they sort of tear up out um, all the the drawings or whatever scratch markings on their the prison. So things yeah. to do to keep spirits up, even so, in the hardest so, of times. It's a classic um, Hogan's Heroes episode, yeah. almost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what's also interesting is that after prison, so he spent eight years in prison. Yeah, what, ha- what, 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 ha- what happened to him afterwards? So he left the Navy after service. So he was a Navy captain, so a one-star, and he gets promoted to... So he leaves at the rank of Rear Admiral. Yeah. Then he worked in broadcasting, trying to share his faith, share um. So how, how was he released? I think towards... Uh, was it... Nixon's era when they were bringing boys back for him from Vietnam. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. So, so there's a plane. There was an exchange. Yeah, there was an exchange, or some kind of agreement, and all the prisoners were put on an airplane back and were sent back to America. Mm. Um, he worked in broadcast. So after he left the Navy, he worked in broadcasting. Then he he ran for a Republican Senate seat in Alabama. He in 1980, and he served for about. Until in 1987, and he has seven oh, yeah. chi- seven kids with his first wife of 61 years of marriage. So amazing. One of the things that he noticed uh, and was interesting to pick up was 
he had an inside perspective of, of North Vietnam during the bombing campaign. So when the U.S. escalated those, those bombings and um, he could see the faces of his prisoners and his and and the guards. Sorry, he could see the, the faces on the guards and the people managing the, the prisons that the bombings had an effect. And he thought the U.S. was on the brink of victory. And then, well, we, we know how it turned out um, in the end. The home front in, in the U.S. forced Americans to withdraw from, from Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. And then you also, you know, eight years in, in a hellhole. He he left in the 19s. He he was he went to Vietnam in 1960s. He came back in the 1970s. And coming home is a different country. Is a different attitude. You had the 70s. You had sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, here's this, uh, you know, strict Catholic guy. He has family, you know, virtue, seven kids, and he sees the change in his country. You know, the guys who are just happy to give in, happy to self indulge. Well, it's it's one it's one of the real tragedies, I think, of the world of both World War One and World War Two, and the generations that led from that, is that um, fam- families, people grew up during those times of great hardship and great adversity, with not having many luxuries. So when when those wars ended, their children were they almost universally said, "We're going to give them that we're going to." give our kids that they want for nothing and you can see the result in the 60s and the 70s in that era of the almost the hedonistic culture that that was released where the children grew up to become adults themselves and they didn't know what what it was to not have whatever they wanted and this this is our boomer generation isn't it (laughs) So I nine, think so, yeah. Think yeah, it is, nine, yeah. So after World War Two, 1940s, yeah. and then if you've been a teenager, mm. yeah, you'd be in the 1960s. And you, you yeah. had very different groups. You know, you you had the guys who went who got drafted you, in. You, you lost the bedrock. You you lost you lost the cultural bedrock, the foundation, because everyone went to war, both both men and the women when they came back. The attitude had had changed. Their, their their view of the world had changed, and that impacted how the next generation was raised. And um, you can look at history, and you can see see the results. The thing, the, the things that the culture, especially in America, the things that they valued, the things that they um, thought were important. Um, I would certainly contend that it's a bit of a lost generation, almost. Yeah. So, you know, when I was looking at this. I was reading through his story. I was like, "What does it mean for us living in, you know, 2020?" And I thought, "Yeah, you know, to endure suffering, you're on trial." The book is, you know, when hell was in session. Who is who? Yeah. Who? It sounds like this courtroom kind of thing. But who is who is on trial here? And it's you. You are the one. Your character is on trial. So you might not know whether you're tough enough to go through you know the prison of war you might not have you don't know that whether you had that resilience or not it's only after you've gone through those suffering that you realize you actually have that thing you have that resilience so it's it's an invisible trait that becomes that reveals itself over time 
through these hardships. Well, that's that's almost almost akin to the um, the for, the forging process. When in order in order to in order to for a blacksmith to make a to turn the raw metal into um, into whether a sword or um, well, go with the sword as an example. In, in order for the blacksmith to make that sword, to make it strong, to make it resilient, to be able to make it do its job for what it was designed to do as a tool, uh, they had to use fire to burn out the the impurities. They had to use a hammer to beat out, um, to, to to make to make it stronger, to make it more uh, more res- more resilient. If you swap the per- swap the metal or the, the raw material out with a, with a person. You, you go through fires, you go through trials and tribulations um, and hardship, and those are those are opportunities to th- those can be opportunities to fail. They can also be opportunities to build and develop character. You learn from your mistakes. You might fall down, but you pick yourself back up. You keep going. Yeah. And, e- and each and each time that happens, your the char- your character uh, grows. You become more yeah. resilient. So like yeah. it goes back to the things we said with uh, Viktor Frankl. You always have the freedom to decide what to do. You have the inner freedom, um, you know, the man's search for meaning that you don't give in um, to the to the people, uh, to your enemies around you. You all you can always be in control of yourself to a certain degree, even though you're in a, that fetal position. Um, you know, eventually yeah. for four or five, six hours, Denton gives in, and then you're flexing it really and you, you know, beats him out, beats himself up for giving in, and goes back, and you know they they torture him again. Um, you know, he yeah. he he fights back by trying to org- after that that session where he's in a fetal position by you know s- keeping the, the group together, not giving up on that sort of yeah. you know team resistance, encouraging others to resist as well, and he becomes a bigger target. Well, yeah, coin, coin, yeah, but coining coin the term yeah. bounce back. Like that, that that's actually a, that it, it's a quite a compelling catch, almost catch cry to um, to think about yeah. bounce back. And I think maybe it's a re- reflection on our character or the, or the character of society. Like we are we are living in the most you know the richest, wealthiest, most comfortable you know society here in you know first world in Australia, and we can be so privileged yeah. and so sp- spoiled, you know that you know. Oh, I'm stuck in a hotel for 14 days. <laughs> I'm stuck in my house, but I've got TV, I've got Netflix, I've got a cupboard full of full of food, of options of thi- oh, I, I can choose what I want to eat, for yeah. example. Yeah, I go, "Oh, it's lunchtime. Um I can I'm going to go and watch any one of a thousand movies on my Netflix channel or Foxtel yeah. um or Disney Plus." That's not a hardship, not not in the actual meaning of the word hardship yeah. any, anymore. But no, we, we, we complain we complain that um, oh we we can actually we'll cut that one. That's no, okay. it's uh, appreciating what you have, and yeah, you know what you have here is a rarity compared to the rest of the world. And so you know if you have kids, then you need to educate them that this is not the norm. I was I was thinking one thing came to my mind is that. You know, if you, if you go to a trip overseas with a you know a charity or your, your church, and you, you're visiting one of those you know third world countries, 
you know, you might you know, you might build a house for someone. You might you know give out food or something yeah. or do medical, but you're only there for the short term, right? And so that experience yeah. is actually teaching you something, right? That 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 mm-hmm. you, what you have back home is not the norm. We're living in a time where, especially in Western in Western first world countries that have um, adopted the ideas of um, capitalism. We're living in a time of great prosperity where we've created a, a vast amount of wealth. Where, yes, you have the wealthy who are exceedingly rich, but you've also got the... Uh, an interesting point that I reflect on is that you have the poor, you have people who are at the other end of the economic spectrum. They Their, their condition is vastly improved to what it was a hundred years ago. Their um, counterparts, the... the the counterparts are of um, 1920s, who were poor, the standard of living vastly, vastly, vastly um, different, and that's been brought that's been brought about by the same culture that has yes that has made people exceedingly rich, but it's brought ev- it's pulled everyone up, everyone. But is there a downside to all this stuff? Like we become less resilient. We we're so used to having internet. I think I talked to one person when we had uh, blackouts here and I said, you know, yeah. after looking, thinking of experience, you know, would you rather have, you know, electricity or would you have rather the internet? And I was looking at the Cisco survey where, you know, some of the younger folks would say, I'd rather have internet than running water. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, yeah. It, it's, yeah. Um, it, was that thing that, that the good times well, create? Good good times create bad men. Bad men create bad times. Bad times create good men. As a bit, well, as a bit of a bit of a history nerd, looking at ancient Rome, for example, it was built that that entire civilization was built on the backs of hard of hard working men and women who built that who built that culture to pretty much have a the, a mat not one, obviously not the largest but a massive spanning empire um, region of influence um, across. Um, the Mediterranean and the um, the Western world. Um, you go th- go through about go through a couple of centuries, and you then meet the you go and meet the Romans, and the people that you meet there are trapped with uh, living in this world of decadence and um, plenty of and luxury, and that's all taken away from them because oh the the barbarians are coming over the hill and they have taken and they have sacked Rome. Because the people there were not were not were so distracted by their earthly possessions, their comforts, their luxuries that doesn't last, and they they lost it yeah. all. It's a bit 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 bit, yeah. bit of a bit of a sombering note, I know, but um, it it it's a, it's certainly a point that I reflect on a lot of provide a bit more hope hope into this is a bit is identify what is what is valuable. What what actually has purpose and me- what has meaning, uh, true meaning to you, um, and to, and yeah, and take comfort in that. I, I think one of the yeah. interesting things on um, Denton and there's a famous video of him coming off the airplane. Oh yes, um, and he you know you know if you're a prisoner of war eight years there, you have every right to be you know bitter about your country, but he goes. He, he says this when he gets off the airplane. He goes, "We are honored to have the opportunity to serve our country." under difficult circumstances 
We are proudly grateful to our Commander-in-Chief and to our nation for this day. God bless America. You know, like, you know, for Australians, I don't think we, I think we're, we're so secularized that we actually don't, I guess, have this sort of character. Like, we, we often scoff at the whole God bless America thing. We scoff at the Americans for that. But what what do we have? I think we often, in like, I'm thinking about the bushfires, I'm thinking about um, the floods and thinking about this virus thing. We, we often fall back to our own faith, you know? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it's just incredible that he says we're honored to have the opportunity to serve our country. <laughs> he sees this as an act of service for his country. Like, I'm thinking... Well, he chose... He cho- wow. he cho- he chose to leave his friends, his family, his home, his country, to go overseas to another place and defend, defend um, his, the the to defend the right or the freedoms to, that his country had and the right to continue to be free, as well. Yeah, and he says we are proudly grateful for Commander in Chief to our nation and to our nation. Can you th- <laughs> like he he, you had, know, he had a perfect opportunity to go to sta- to stand stand in front of everyone and say you left me in that hellhole for was it eight years? Yeah, yeah. You, you left me in that hole in that hellhole for eight eight long years. I hate you, all of you. you could well, have, he could have blasted Lyndon B. Johnson, or he could blast R- yeah. Richard Nixon. Like, yeah, he, he could. You know, the pop he, the popular thing right now is to blast you know the U.S. President Trump. Yes, or of course. To yeah. blast. The, the last the sitting uh, current prime minister. Yeah, but he says we are proudly grateful. <laughs> it was with humility. He, he spoke with humility, uh, great and grace. Um, he he didn't give in to despair. That that's another that's another key thing I hear from that quote from from his speech. Um, he didn't give in. To, he didn't give in to despair. He was hopeful, optimistic, uh, grateful. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we talk we, we talk about that inner that inner character, and even in spite of everything that had been, all the trials and tribulations he had gone through, um, almost unthinkable, sitting here talking about them, um, he still he still kept pushing forward. He still kept bouncing back. It's a, it's it's a ama- it, it really is an amazing story. Yeah. So you need to you got you need to read the book now. <laughs> I think I I think I do. Yeah. And just learn for examples. Yeah. Um, on like th- that those stories that I've read out those are just one of the things to help with uh, understanding the inner freedom. But there's all these other stories that which are so interesting to listen and to yeah. uh, learn from. Um yeah. I think yeah we you know being thankful this and for this grateful this world that we live in. Mm. Um, is a is a good point to take away. Absolutely. You know, is that thing that's bothering me really that life threatening? And if yeah. you've been through uh, Denton's positions, like uh, you know, bad drivers, poor customer service, or you know, maybe a, a little dip in a relationship, that's nothing. <laughs> oh my 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 internet's not not. I can't stream 4K video at the moment on Netflix or on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Like that. Well, yeah, everyone's at home because of the quarantine and they yeah. can't get to netflix so therefore it's it's yeah. hell yeah you, you are you are aware by the way with this episode you are dating it by referencing coronavirus like this this thing could hypothetically be over in a month or two we don't obviously don't know but um 
So you are, we are dating. We both of us are actively dating this podcast episode pretty severely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, and I think knowing you always have freedom. I think that's one like whether on the inside in learning about the inside freedom and the outside freedom. So no matter what the situation, you always have that choice. So Frankel, um, Solzhenitsyn, and Denton they they demonstrate the human spirit to to endeavor. That, that's the thing that you know the human spirit, the will to fight. So don't just give up on what you have. Yeah. It, it, um, it's the, it's the story of good, the good triumphing over evil. But the good and tri- the good triumphing over you was not like here we're the good guys and there's the bad guys. I no. think there's also the the inside bit yeah, inside it, yourself. You have the evil and you have the good. Yeah. And your your and good war. side is trying to fight over that evil. Yeah. It's it's that it's that inner war, that inner conflict. I I, I do actually enjoy Je- I do enjoy the story of Jekyll and Hyde. Actually, this classic Victorian um, era novel, and um, it really encapsulates that idea quite quite well quite closely that war in nature between the good and the evil yeah yeah and i think you know for us in the west we're used to comfort and we always want to move away from suffering but and here suffering puts your character it hardens your spirit it puts you in trial and and it's going like this old saying it's like you know whatever doesn't kill you make you stronger that's the old that's the old you know wisdom saying that we we're hearing well, I think from, I think from these stories. I think that's Doomsday from Superman. Just saying, probably. <laughs> uh, but 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 what I think now is where whatever doesn't kill you makes you weaker. That's the the popular notion yeah. for our age. Yeah, hide, we are hide, very... hide hide from adversity. Hide from difficulty. Yeah. Um, yeah. You 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 raise, you raise some, some excellent points here. Uh, what do you think? Um, should be the takeaway points for yourself. I, th- I think you've actually covered most of them, actually. Yeah. Yeah, you've, you've covered you've covered them quite well. Well. <laughs> so, what was the what point from listening to all this hit you the most? So, what point? I mean, I think I missed that last part. What was what point and what what some of the points in this one that hit you the most? That impacted you? Yeah. Well, I think the thing that inter- that was certainly quite compelling was um, was that inner conflict that um, Solzhenitsyn um, was was reflecting on this this human nature um, that that inner struggle between good and evil and that constant that constant warring um, and um, and obviously with um, with Denton's story that his capacity to try and overcome and to overcome um, to overcome that that adversity um, and that evil that he was experiencing, and um, draw upon that in, that draw upon almost that inner strength, um, that inner resolve. But also, and also thinking about it, also that um, it's not the end of the world if you fall down. I mean, part of part of Denton's story is that he did at one point he did cave in, he did give up. But that wasn't, and if, and that wasn't the, but that wasn't the end of the story. It's that he pushed back. Is that he came, he bounced, he bounced back and came, and came back again. Um, I think, and I think that is that's something quite compelling that, as a part of personal character, that we we all we all need to work on and continue and 
not try to run away or avoid adversity and difficulty, but continue to look at these opportunities as ways to grow, personally grow your character further. I think that's a good point. Yeah. And I think on that note, we can probably end. Sounds good. Well, Uh, thank you very much for um, having me, Johnny. It's been, been a pleasure as always. So just one small correction, Denton was a Navy captain, which means he was a full colonel when he was shot down. Just out for the military geeks out there. It was interesting to hear Jeremiah Denton reflect on his struggles and weigh it up on the cost to his resistance. At the time of his resistance, he too also wondered if it was worth it. We see a man who was tempted many times to give in, but when he did, he bounced back. I think learning to bounce back after failure is a key lesson that we shouldn't be afraid to learn. We often hold perfection too strongly and expect everything in life to go well, but often it isn't. In fact, life can get messy. In our quiet moments in life, reflecting on our failures and thinking how to overcome is a valuable lesson. I also note that Denton's Catholic faith played a key role during his time in prison. I thank you listeners for joining us on our podcast. If you have comments, questions, please email to thefireinthedesert at gmail.com. Feel free to send a voicemail. We're also online on Twitter with at fireinthedesert. Until then, you've been listening to the Fire in the Desert podcast, conversations about life, society, and culture. Join us next time, and we'll see you then. Music, Outfoxing the Fox, by Kevin McLeod at incomtech.com. Music.